Sonic States Roscom. Hello and welcome everybody to Sonic Talk number 198. Um, I'm, I'm a bit distracted today because I'm getting everything geared up for a multi-camera shoot for when Tara Bush comes down for our 200th podcast, which is obviously only two from here. So, uh, hmm. Um, anyway, so I might be a little bit distracted, but hello and welcome everybody. I'm glad to see some people in the chat room. Uh, well, Sonic Talk number 198, as I've already said. Uh, SonicState.com forward slash live, 4 p.m., uh, UK time, um, if you want to join us for live chat, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, hello and welcome to our guests. Uh, I'll start with Gaz Williams, who's over in Bristol. Gaz Williams, obviously, uh, our resident uh, UK producer. Uh, not in the back of the car this week, this then, Gaz. No, actually, was I was doing another workshop with kids today, but uh, it was so freezing, I, th- I actually managed to kind of get home in time because I was uh, a little bit afraid of kind of freezing. Because uh, I was up in uh, Ebba Vale in South Wales, which is quite high up, actually, up in the mountains. So yeah. it was, uh, <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I thought it might be a little bit too chilly to do it from there, but uh, I just about made it in. I think you're right, because <laughs> today has turned very cold. We're being told that it's going to be, the whole country is going to be covered in snow for, um, well, from from the end of the week. In fact, I got a newsletter from the school saying this is what's going to happen if we have to close. Right. <laughs> it's a bit yeah, like, I'm... but I've, I always find that a bit like saying, if I am ill tomorrow, is it okay if I don't come in? You know what I mean? It's sort of, <laughs> anyway, but. It might well be snowing later. Anyway, um, I, have we got a, um, a URL for you yet? I don't think I don't. I won't embarrass you, but we'll say no, rock, uh, rock, Rocket Gold Star, MySpace.com, yes. which I got right for the first time. That's um, right. Woohoo. <laughs> anyway, um, and also, um, while we're on this side of uh, of the world, we'll say hello to Dave Spears at G4Software.com too. How are you, Dave? I'm all right, thank you. I hear you have uh, some new equipment. Yes, couldn't resist it. Excellent. Uh, a very old ARP sequencer. Oh, really? They're very, uh, very, very, very much in demand, are they not? Yeah, and this was a great price, actually. And even better, it was hand-delivered. I bought it from a guy in Cambridge who gave it to his brother, who lives about seven miles from here, and his brother delivered it yesterday morning. Can't say better than that, really. Nice one. Nice one. Mm. Uh, that means that there's no room for kind of it got broken in the... Uh... You know, in the transit, as it were. No, well, no, of course. But I've been playing with it all day, and it's very nice. Excellent. Uh, what do you hooked it up to? Uh, straight away, I hooked it up to the Odyssey, and then I also hooked it up to a Sem as well. Wow, oh, well, that sounds like tomorrow. It. Maybe Minimoog Day. If awesome, I can. fun, brilliant. Well, I'll jump over to Rich Hilton because I know Rich has got a, a slightly short schedule today and um, may not be with us for the entire show. But, of course, we're just very happy that he is with us at all. Uh, Rich Hilton, of course, uh, flies the controls at uh, Le Crib, which is Nile Rogers' personal studio, and is uh, constantly working at the highest levels. How are you, Rich? <laughs> I'm fine. How about yourself? Yes, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for asking. <clears throat> Uh, not cold in here today. In fact, quite warm. But I think that's partly to do with the amount of pressure I've put myself under um, just with I all see. of this technology. I see. <laughs> well, the, the highest level I work at these days is the third floor. Oh, well, that's pretty high. Same floor as me. <laughs> no, I'm on second floor, so you're actually one above. But that's that's right and fitting for a man of your caliber. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. So, uh, um, 
Well, I, I guess we could get started because I know you're under under some uh, time constraints. So um, let, let's just get stuck in. And the first uh, item that we've got this week is the JMZ drum kit mic. Uh, it's quite an interesting thing. I mean, uh, these things come out sort of, you know, from time to time. They sell little nice little cases with a set of mics for, for making uh, for micing up drums. I think Audio Technica do it and sure that, you know, loads of people do it. But JMZ, uh, a Latvian uh, company, and they produce this thing called the JMZ. The DMK1. It's three BT201 mics, which they call bat mics, which is kind of fitting, seeing as that's my second name. Uh, two matched overheads and an open cardioid capsule with a 20 dB capsule for kick. A thousand bucks at the moment, um, till the 5th of December when it goes up to about 1600 bucks. I just wondered um, A, is three mics enough? And B, do you have you got any um, experience of this? I'll start with you, Rich, because um, you're probably the most, and then go to Gaz, perhaps, because you're two, you two are probably the most recordy people that we have on the panel. Is three mics enough? For some people, it is, and <laughs> for some circumstances, it is. Um, but having matched kick drum and overhead mics is an interesting concept I had never heard of before. And as unlikely as I am to stick a pair of small diaphragm condensers over a drum kit, uh, I am even less likely to stick one in a kick drum. Right. That's that just because of the size hear. of the diaphragm. Yeah, it's for well because of the sound that comes out of them as a result of that and a number of other things. But um, I'd love to hear it. I particularly over a drum kit. But my overhead mics are, are where I make the sound of the kit, and. Everything else, except I, I guess on some level, is a spot mic. Now the kick mic takes on some greater importance because it doesn't it find itself that present in the overheads. But everything else that's facing up um, is is intended by me to be captured in some sort of glorious stereo vision over the drum kit. Uh-huh. And there's a number of ways to achieve that glorious stereo vision. My latest. Glorious stereo vision has to do with putting a stereo microphone or an XY pair uh, somewhat above the head of the drum drummer, but hearing more or less what he's hearing. So I don't use overhead mics as spot mics or as cymbal mics because I'm never going to have too you know too little cymbals in no, what's sure. going on as far as I can tell. So um, for people who do like to view their overheads as cymbal mics, these might be nice. Ah, okay. In other words, if you have a different way of working from the way I work, these might make more sense overhead. And still, I'd like to hear them. Yeah, the, I've heard some good. I mean, they're not they're not what you call low cost. I mean, a thousand bucks. I suppose a thousand bucks for three mics is kind, or fifteen hundred bucks for three mics is not. It's kind of mid price, isn't it? I mean, considering how right. much money a lot of these mics are costing at the moment, it's perhaps not not the bottom of the range. And I, I know that some James the James E mics are often, you know, they're they're starting to be talked of in circles. I think they do a load of ribbon mics, if I'm not mistaken, as well. But I I would have to double check that. Um, Gaz, are you are you a three mic drum kit man or less? <laughs> uh, well, I have been less sometimes. Um, I really do like the three mic approach uh i think it's uh i mean it's it's one of those things it's really nice uh to have a a simple sound where you haven't got loads of phase issues and you know dealing with the overheads and the kick is is quite you know from a mix point of view it does actually kind of limit your kind of mix options quite a bit but that sometimes can be really nice so if you're doing a a session and and it's 
going to be a fairly quick session. It's actually quite nice to, it's a nice way to work. But I think as well, if you do place, uh, like what Rich is saying, you can really get the sound of the kit in the overheads. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I really like that. I mean, a lot of my favorite sounding records tend to have that kind of, uh, that miking array really. Right. Um, yeah, I, I tend to think of it as the Glyn Johns, um, miking style. Cause he, he famously, you know, was quite adverse to using close mics on kits and stuff. And um, I think I read somewhere that it was either him or somebody else was actually thought close mic drums sounded vulgar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I mean, I come from a close mic point of view just purely because I've done lots of live work, but um, I I, I used to, I'll show you actually, I've got a mic here. I've got a, uh, I used to have this thing called a, it's a Sony ECM 979 which was a stereo mic. It was quite expensive. I think it was a couple of hundred quid back in sort of 1990. But what that used to have, it's got a dial on it, which I can show you here, which goes round from naught to 150 degrees. So you can really throw out the stereo width and get quite an interesting sort of surreal super sound if that's kind of what what suits. Mm -hmm. But I I take your point. I mean, that's an interesting point about... um, dealing with the phase issues and not having to mess around. I mean, that, that's because that's something that is difficult with, with certainly with multi-miking a live kit for, for studio recording. Cause I mean, how do you, how do you know when it's right? Is it just ears or is there a way of viewing it on the waveform or how does that work? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I do tend to sort of, uh, I do a lot of like kind of manual phase aligning when I look at the waveforms and get them all kind of working together. Uh, uh, well, change it after uh, you've recorded it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, I really do like to try and get that three mic technique working. So I was quite interested to see that, and um, I like Rich as well. I've not, never seen something marketed in such a way before, so I am I am quite intrigued. Uh, do like the sound of that. Um, a friend of mine has been using the Earthworks. There's a new Earthworks uh, drum mic set, and he is absolutely blown away by them. So, they were. I mean, I think that's a lot more than your mid price yeah, kind I of stuff. Yeah, I think they're, they're top top notch, aren't they, Earthworks? Yeah, uh, but um, yeah, I'd like to try them too. Um, but I do a lot of drum miking, and I really do enjoy miking drums a lot. So, uh, I, I, yeah, so I do have many different ways of working with them, really. But, um, Rich, how do you get the phaser line? Do you do it after, or do you just use your ears to get it right when you're recording? Uh, well, I do the overheads first, and then I phase check everything against them for maximum coherence as I'm working. As I'm opening up the kick mic, for example, having done the overheads when I'm starting on the kick, yeah. after I get something that sounds pretty good on its own, I'm comparing it in my overheads and checking phase reversing the phase of of typically the close mic to see how it's lining up with the overheads and if i find i'm reversing the phase of all of the close mics then i'll just unphase those and reverse the phase of the overheads but it's uh sort of instinctual hit or miss hearing what sounds right what sounds in phase to me so i'm just let me kind of understand that so when you've got the overhead sounding the way you know a sound on the overheads you then bring in the a spot mic say a kick so now i'm going to so now i've got got a mic pretty much on everything and the extent to which i'll use them is yet as yet to be determined yeah but everything needs to sound good when the guy hits it right so the the next thing for me after the overheads is kick mic 
and put up the kick drum and see what I've got, see what it sounds like. And the first thing you're going to do is move the microphone around, chances are, and maybe even switch the microphone depending on what you hear. Yeah. And once you decide that you've got it in a decent place where you're getting enough stuff that you can make it, then you you switch on the EQ (laughs) and you do what you got to do to make it sound like the kick you love, you know, the kick of your dreams. (laughs) And then you uh, open back up your own. And and you, at some point in that process, I've muted the overheads because I really just need to, what's happening there. Then I'm going to unmute the overheads and compare it in the overheads to see if anything's being unduly reinforced in an unpleasant way. And I'm also going to swap the phase around on the close mic to see if I get better results in or out. So would you ever get to a situation where you would actually be re- losing a lot of the mic, but if you've got the phase absolutely right, is that kind of what you're looking for? So you reverse the phase and then you lose a lot of it because does that mean you're absolutely locked? Is that kind fact, of- you know, the funny thing is I'm sitting here at my desk like pushing buttons as though the phase button is in front of me. It's <laughs> actually acting out what I'm describing to you. Um, the answer to your question is how do you know when it's in phase? Yeah. One of them will show you a whole bunch of wonderful, gorgeous bottom end, and the other one won't. Right. I mean, that's the easiest way to tell. But okay. there's, it, I, the, how do you know if something is out of phase? There's, I know it immediately. Oh, yeah. No, I, can, I mean, I can I, hear it's that. It's not just because of the bottom end. Oh, right. Okay. But the most obvious and easily identifiable way to know if something is out of phase is the, the bottom, the low frequencies won't reinforce properly, and, they'll, right. and uh, it'll sound wimpy or thin or yeah. hollow or... Okay. Do you um? uh, Is there something? Is there any value to those things which actually continually vary a phase, so you can bring it through? Have you seen that? Some channels have that possibility. You know, the guy who taught me how to engineer for for the most part wished for this thirty years ago, and has unfortunately not lived to see the day when (laughs) it actually exists. Um, I've never seen one on a console, and I've never had it available. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've got one on my. Uh, I've got. A, I, I bought a an Audient uh, Mico or Miko preamp, uh, and that's got a very phase control oh, right, on it. Okay. Um, so when you put your overheads up, and if you put it through that, then you can. Yeah, you can kind of uh, sweep through and just sort of um, find the spot. But it's very yeah on the spot. It's very subtle, and to be honest, um, I've generally found I've I, I've been preferring to do it. Like I said earlier earlier you know after the fact um and also i i I have been generally lining up my overheads with my kick and snare you know just sliding the overheads um uh forward in time ever such a tiny amount uh, and you know and just using the uh the graphical representation to sort of um to try and make that really accurate and it is quite amazing if i just toggle with the undo control and just to sort of like listen you know before and afterwards and uh the drums do seem to have a lot more focus when you do when you do do that um incidentally i just wanted to mention a little story i thought i was being a really clever bod recently i am um, when i set up uh, overhead mics in a ab configuration um i always like to try to measure their sort of the snare drum uh Using uh, like a measuring tape or something from the snare to, to both AB and uh, both mics to make sure that the the distance is roughly the same, so the that the snare sound is arriving at both overhead mics at the same time. And I was trying to work out an easier way of doing this, so I I bought one of those um, you know those uh, like sonic laser uh, measuring tape things where you just uh, 
you know, the estate agents will use or whatever for uh, oh, yeah. So I, th- I thought, oh, brilliant. I'll put this on the mic and I'll, I'll just... Uh, I'll just measure it to the snare and then I'll put it to the other mic and measure it to the snare. And um, so I went on a, on a job and I was ah, <laughs> just exposing the nerdiness of myself here. I was really actually quite excited to try that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and to, my, to my great dismay, it didn't work. I think there wasn't enough mass from the snare, uh, you know, so as I was pinging the kind of sonar at it, I wasn't, I was just getting an error reading, so... It was, uh, oh, I see. So, you, yeah. So you're doing the measurement. Thing. Oh my god! But then yeah, there's all sorts yeah. of other factors, I suppose. <laughs> oh, oh, shame. That would have been neat, wouldn't it? You could have developed. Yeah. It could have been your own very own technique, and you know, I've I, figured I out know. how to. I, 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 love, I love coming up with stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so it doesn't work. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Dave, are you? I, I'm guessing you probably don't record a lot of drums, but I mean, you must have recorded, been recorded a bunch of times with drums. Yep. Definitely. And the more mics, the better. Make me feel important. Ah, yes. I, I call it DSDSS, which is Dave Spears' drummer studio syndrome. More mics than the vocalist on my kit. Doesn't matter if they don't work, just make me feel important. And hire me a gong while you're at it. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> or I'll bring my own, of course. No, I never had one of those. I, no, I, I, like, I like the idea of less mics because, I, I mean, the, the, just getting it all to sound sweet in the mix is... is it's easy for it to sound mushy, and I think that's—I mean—that's obviously where you'd get the experience of a, a, an experienced engineer and just someone who's kind of you know doesn't who just wants to try a load of mics out. I suppose that's where well, the experience to me, really counts. As I just told the chatties, it's all about the third dimension. That phase thing is very important. Somebody asked me on the chat room if I ever mess with it on a sample level, and I generally don't. And I'll fight tooth and nail to preserve the phase of what I've recorded in any subsequent edits it creates the sort of uh the, the bedrock of the stereo image i suppose of the track doesn't it or is that uh, and, being and as grand? i said it's yeah it's that third dimension it mm. gives it depth a perceived depth and it fills this space between the two you know imaginary points of sound uh so much more unobtrusively right not, it doesn't sound like it's being forced out of a pair of speakers right i think that's got to be worth a million dollars, at least. I hope so. <laughs> well, anyway, anybody who thinks anybody who agrees can have my address. <laughs> well, the J- anyway, the JMZ drum mic kit available now. A uh, thousand bucks till the fifth of December when it goes up to fifteen ninety three. I'm guessing you can get it from all good distributors. I don't know exactly where. Um, Rich, I wonder whether we should jump ahead to 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 something that you might have. Um, you know, maybe you'd like to pick the next uh, topic because I know that your time is limited. Were you uh, interested? Uh, I, I, know, I got a text with you before where you were talking about the iOS 4.2. Is that something that you would like to ch- talk Absolutely. about? Absolutely. Okay, well, let's, um, let's do that then. What I'm going to do is just going to play a little bit of a clip here first. That was, in fact, the sound of uh, the Elatron uh, being played via uh, a connected MIDI device, which is an Axiom, uh, M-Audio Axiom 49, and um, via Direct MIDI, which is obviously with the 
the release, I think it was just a couple of days ago, of iOS 4.2, which adds core MIDI support to, uh, I guess, iPhone, iPod Touch, and the um, the iPad. It seems like, I mean, I've seen there's been other things. I, I, unfortunately, obviously, I jailbroke my app, my my iPad, like three days before this came out. So I'm not sure whether I want to whether I have to go back or not. But I, I want I want to check it out anyway. But um, this this is a big deal, right? I mean, if we can get low latency in there, but it does raise a lot of other interesting questions. Um, and one of them being, uh, you need the camera connection kit, which is kind of let me see. I've got let me flip to a. I can probably, which is this little thing here. It's like a little uh, gizmo that sits in the bottom of your iPad and you have a USB connection on the back of it. Um, but obviously you don't get that with an iPhone or an iPod Touch. It's, apparently it doesn't work with those. So that raises another interesting question. It does apparently give access over Wi-Fi as well. I mean, are these all good? is this all good stuff? I know, Rich, you were talking about um, getting a bit excited about um, having uh, a native... Uh, a class-compliant controller, because that's all you need now with Core MIDI support. It's yeah, it, it spurred a whole train of thought for me this morning about, first of all, getting something extremely portable that I could use with my little USB camera kit thing. And I guess you got to have a powered hub to power the keyboard or, or a power source for the keyboard. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I broke out the iPad and started and connected it to my little studio here at home and started playing around with the synth site all downloaded. And it was like, yeah, you know, this could really be cool. And so, and then I ran across an ad for somebody practically giving away this little two-octave Akai controller. And I said, well, yeah, that might be the thing for the portable. But I think for my desk here, I might have to get myself some kind of thing with drum pads and knobs on it. Hmm. Well, it looked like that, that was sort of that like, was I played that that was the soundtrack to the video, and they were using and because of the Elytron, I don't know if you saw, I reviewed it a while back, and there's chord memories, and they were using the drum pads to trigger the different chords, and using the knobs, the rotary encoders, to flip through presets. You know, some re- kind of I, it all sounds very rudimentary. I mean, it's sort of almost strange we're getting excited about it, but it does actually kind of change the game a little bit. You've got a you know a, a multi instrument capable sound source kind of in the in your in your briefcase, which is mm-hmm. obviously an interesting concept. And the synths I've heard, some of them sound pretty good. Yeah. That cork, that cork thing, that high MS 20 sounds pretty good to me. And, it does. Uh, well, we covered that a couple of weeks, uh, last week, didn't we? Oh, a couple of weeks yeah. ago. In fact, I spoke to Korg about this because I was wondering what the situation was. Cause the one thing I was, I mentioned, it would be great if it had MIDI support. And uh, my anonymous source inside Korg said, I'm sure we will want to take advantage. I would be really surprised if MIDI was ignored on future updates, which is, so I think, you know, we could probably safely say that something will be coming along there. But the other thing that's kind of interesting about this is obviously if we've got core MIDI support, we can clear the screen of any triggering devices. So we can use much more of the screen for the interface, which is more exciting to me because that's always a problem. When you've got this bloody keyboard taking up a third or half of the keyboard of the of the screen, you're kind of it's it, it defeats the point a little bit. Right. And once the MIDI is going in and out of everybody's iPad, people will start taking that into account and hiding the keyboards or offering it as an option even where it's visible. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure everybody's going to, if it's all there in core support, I don't know how much of an update it is for a developer to actually do that. I mean, Dave, I imagine you'll probably have finger on pulses and uh, would would maybe know a bit more about this. Uh, uh, like, How easy would it be to take an app and add some MIDI support? Do you have any inkling about that process? 
not me personally. I mean, obviously, we've been sort of talking about this. Uh, the main stumbling block appears, I mean, it has always been to me the lack of interfacing. And obviously, with this, it, it, it is a bit of a game changer, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of uh, being able to take out a very portable device. But according to one of our guys, they are very different chips in the iPad. So I think there's an awful lot of work got to be done. I think you've either got to develop specifically for that or, um, you know, for the audio unit side of things. Ah, okay. So So in terms of porting, then it's a different, you know, it's a different set of circumstances. Yeah. Okay. From what I understand, anyway. I think but it's yeah, no, be... it was interesting. Eric Eric Persing put a post up yesterday saying that he'd been playing around with um, Mini Synth Pro, and it was just like you know, it's just, it's definitely the start of something. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to. Uh, well, I have to. I don't know how you unjailbreak an iPad. I guess I'd have to reset it or something, don't I? And then I just download the OS and do that and resync it. Anybody? <laughs> or do I have Any... I broken it and that's it forever now? Was that a very costly, expensive mistake I've made? That ten seconds, it, that ten seconds it took me to jailbreak it has actually cost me the price of the iPad. I do hope not. <laughs> I certainly do hope not. But yes, um, um, there seems to be. Uh, you do need a USB powered hub in between. Some interfaces will work, but not if they need much current. And obviously, if they do need any current, you're going to be pulling a lot of stuff out of the battery. I mean, that's the one thing that's kind of a bit of an issue as well. It means that if I plug a MIDI thing into it, I can't actually use the VGA out at the same time unless there's some sort of splitter. It does. Uh, it does make me think about. Uh who's going to be first to market a you know uh, a controller with a built-in slot for an iPad i know there is that one is it an akai the akai one? one yeah yeah absolutely yeah but i mean a controller keyboard with an ipad sort of you know that actually slots in and interfaces uh, and maybe powers the ipad as well as uh, that now that may make me finally kind of uh, <laughs> reach for the wallet you know well it's um, interesting it takes you back to the old novation um what was it called the little base station thing that not the base the midi keyboard that you put a qi in it just like a slot in yeah. it it's kind of yeah we're almost <laughs> getting there aren't we and yeah. that was exciting all that was was a bit of molded plastic you know Don't. but uh, but I do think it, you know, there is this issue, isn't there? If you were using a an iPad with a keyboard, certainly for live, you would want a really nice, secure place to uh, to put it in, or to find a way of fixing it to the keyboard in such a way. So yeah, you would. You wouldn't uh, want it to be running off or actually putting too much pressure on it if it's tilting mm-hmm. and sort of going like that while you jump up and down on the stage. Uh, DP Tronic in the chat room says some music apps are not working after the 4.2 upgrade. Uh, I can imagine that must be the case. It must be because it's quite a major thing. I'm told. There's a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> oh look, it's the phone. Hold on one second. Hello, Nick. It's me. I just called to interrupt your podcast and see what you were doing right now. Yeah. Can I sell you some life insurance? I've I've recently gotten into the habit of doing this each Wednesday in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> because I know that you're very busy at those times and Turn it off. hundreds, maybe thousands of people are waiting for you. <laughs> okay, man, it was really nice talking to you. We'll see you soon. Okay, bye-bye. After last, <laughs> after last week's um, brief spout of uh, professionalism where I turned the phone off, I obviously forgot to do that, um, so sorry about that. That was a cold <laughs> call. I didn't even get to find out who it was from, but I wasn't rude, but I did, you know, I did turn the mic down just in case I had been. <laughs> okay I, I conducted a fictional conversation with you in your absence oh thank you very much i hope it was uh, worthy of uh, 
of that one. But I, I shall look forward to that in the edit. Excellent. Seems to have gone down very well in the chat room. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, um, iOS 4.2, Core MIDI, here we go. I mean, there's going to be a lot of uh, other issues. I mean, I, I think one thing that's going to be quite interesting is how it works over Wi-Fi, because uh, that would be interesting. I wonder what the latency is going to be like uh, and that kind of stuff, because obviously um, that's going to be a nice feature, presumably working it with the door. Although, I'm, yeah, I'm not quite sure whether you'd want to do that, because you'd then be involving another piece of hardware that would translate the MIDI anyway. I'm not quite sure about that, but uh, we we will find out. And what I'm hoping to do is uh, I will obviously install uh, 4.2 on the, my machine and then see what uh, what happens <laughs> and go back to trying to film a, a shiny screen um, and get the contrast right. But hey, the things I have to do... <laughs> Anybody got anything right. else they want to add before we uh, we thank our, our lovely sponsors? I can barely wait. Well, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, thank you very much for that topic, uh, iOS 4.2. And we want to say thank you to our show sponsors, who, are, of course, are Yamaha. Yamaha are, at the moment, they're, they're drawing our attention to the HS50M and HS80M, which are their powered active studio monitors uh, and these are a replacement or consider they're inspired by the original ns10m studios which were kind of legendary for their well not the spikiness but the, the ability they made you work hard to get a mix you know these aren't flattering hi-fi speakers they're something that are going to make you work hard and get a mix but when your mix sounds good on them they sound good anywhere in fact these two models are now outselling the original ns10ms which is kind of a bit of a, a crazy thought because i thought they were ubiquitous i've got a pair out in the room um over there but um, sadly the tweet has gone and i haven't got around to getting a new one and of course they're also passive which is just just doesn't fit with my setup so please uh, yamaha encouraging you to go to a, a store near you take in a sound source that you're familiar with and go and check them out and just sort of see what you make of them because in a lot of cases you know speakers are a very personal thing but sometimes you just hear something and just go that's the one i need i can totally understand those and when you learn to understand a, a set of speakers they really do help you with your mixes so please do check it out if you go to yamaha downloads and if you're in the uk check on the check on the pulse stores tab and go and see which stores are near you and you can go and bring in um your sound source and take a listen and while you're at it um please also go to yamaha download.com and go and have a poke around because there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff uh, especially especially about the new motif xf uh, which uh, was something that we've been talking about in previous issues so please do uh go and check out yamaha download.com check out the speakers and check out uh, all the other stuff that they've got and we want to say thank you once again to uh, yamaha for their continued sponsorship of the show this weekend, I went to see Underworld, uh, courtesy of Dave, at the Brixton Academy. And it was absolutely awesome, Dave. I just want to say thanks, because I've been thinking about it all week. And I must admit, all those tunes that I heard that I wasn't totally familiar with are just absolutely embedded in my head, because the whole experience was so sort of complete. Even though the Brixton Academy has doesn't have the best sounding, you know, it's not the best sounding venue. So it got me thinking about how important sound is to a gig and whether it is just about that or whether it's more important that you get everything else right. And I know, Rich, you know, you gig in large venues, you have a kind of touring setup and you've got quite a complex band setup as well. I mean, I guess you don't get to hear what the front of house thing is, but you must understand, obviously go to quite a number of gigs yourself. Do you kind of, well, you know, how important is it to, to, to kind of get the sound crystal? You know, I mean, obviously we want a good sound. We want to be able to hear everything, but sometimes it's more than just that. Isn't you're, it? you're talking to the guy ready to take a gun to the guy who wants to sample edit my overhead mics. You know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> so how important, very important. Uh, 
And how good does it have to sound? Damn good. Um, I do get to hear front of house, at least during sound checks quite often, because I walk out and hear other people playing. You know, I don't know. I don't stay on stage throughout the sound check. Um, but obviously during the show, it's a wise stage performer who knows that he has no idea what's going out there. Yeah. And should temper everything he does and says to anybody who's in charge of that. <laughs> um, because it, truly, when you're, truly, when you're up there, you have no idea. And oh, so often does the sound engineer have to face a guy who's standing up there who's got platinums as long as your arm and Grammys and everything else who's trying to tell him what it sounds like out front. And, uh, uh, you know, so how important it is? It's, it's vitally important. And how much... Do I respect guys who can do it so much I could name them for you? So uh, they're heroes to me, those guys, and it's an incre- it's an art. I, yeah, I, well, it was. I mean, you can't stress it to me, right? That's interesting. I mean, Dave, what about? I mean, you were there as well. I mean, and you know, one of the topics of conversation was just how bad the venue sounds generally. It wasn't particularly aimed at the band on that night. I mean, to me, it was, it wasn't you know the the, cl- the clearest of sounds, but it was really powerful and vibey. And I took away so much from that gig that wasn't about the sound, and that's kind of why I was really interested in discussing it. It's funny because I think Brixton Academy's got that kind of wash sound, hasn't it? It's got that very kind of mid upper wash that just seems to kind of ricochet off all the walls however Mm -hmm. in this case they circumnavigated that by simply turning the kick drum up to maximum and beyond well Well, it sort of worked actually our eardrums were kind of pulsating for the entire evening and the balcony, in fact, we were at the VIP bar and bumped into Dave Robinson wasn't it? We did in uh, fact, it was a very very strange uh, coincidence that so, hello, Dave. Did your voice sound like this? <laughs> it was brilliant. And the entire balcony was just sort of vibrating in time with the kick. Yeah, it was. It was bouncing up and down. It was like a kind of, I don't know, it must have been a sort of 70-foot piece of concrete reinforced, and it was just gently oscillating. Like when you stand in the middle of a, uh, a suspension bridge footbridge and jump up and down and feel the waves. <laughs> it's quite... Wow. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Wow. So that must That's have also... Scary. Yeah, it was quite scary, actually. I was thinking, is that normal? <laughs> I don't know whether it was the kick drum, or whether it was all the people jumping up and down at the same time. I'm not right. quite sure, but but yeah, it was an interesting one that because obviously they went on at midnight and the doors had opened at eight o'clock. So I think a fair few people have been on the old disco biscuits. Yeah, I think so. So by the time it came to midnight, it was potential chaos. Must have been <laughs> right down the front. I'm sure it was. I couldn't. I couldn't. Couldn't bring myself to go there. I know, Gaz. Are you kind of a, a regular attendee of those sort of large? Large gigs? Oh, you know, this is a whole can of worms now. Um, <laughs> I, I've got very strong opinions about this issue. Um, do you know, like, I remember in the uh, 90s and when dance music was really, really, really kicking off big, uh, it was always like uh, the DJ would be on and they'd be pumping out, like, really banging out loud and then the band had come on and the band had sound really wimpy compared to the dj and all the ba- all the audience would want the dj to go back on so the, the the fight back was just to get the band's kick drum kind of as loud as it is in um in the dance music you know uh and this kind of now this has kind of set a really terrible precedent now over the years now where you go and watch a band uh, and this is very true in Britain, and I don't think it's so. As, it's not as true in America. Um, 
and the kick drum is disproportionately loud for the whole band mix and i think it sounds awful uh i mean i'm a bass player primarily so i'm you know always quite keen to hear what the bassist is doing and you can't hear the bass hardly ever in venues anymore you know it's all just um massive whomping kick drum <laughs> and but there's another reason why they, why they do this as well and this kind of harks back at my rant at the end of last week's show is that a lot of bands they just can't play very well so if you put a band who can't play very well on stage you just ramp the kick drum up it kind of masks that you just kind of just pummel the audience into thinking that it's kind of uh you know that that this is exciting and, and an energetic band but I think it's I think it's really abysmal, and I, but I do notice if I see an American band playing in Britain and they've got their own sound guy, they tend to sort of have a very different mix, a much more sort of a balanced mix. So it definitely is something that the Brits seem to be kind of doing wrong. Uh, that's, um, that's very interesting, actually. Thought of that. I, I would just like to say at this point, I I served most of my live sound um, years before the advent of dance music. So I like to think that <laughs> I'm not responsible in any way for that transition. Although I do like if, a nice loud kick drum. <laughs> if I may piggyback a moment on Gaz's point, which I think is brilliant and wonderful. Um, the problem with emphasizing low frequencies like that is that the, the uh, second and third harmonics of those low frequencies occur in the mid-range where you hear all the music. And so then what you have to do is you have to fight the harmonics of the bass with everything else you do. In, uh, and, and ultimately, you have to achieve vocal clarity through everything else you do right. with that frequency space being so filled up by the bass. And that becomes the problem is that you start fighting the mid-range because you've boosted the bass so much. And... Uh, I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's, all, it's always hard to get the bottom end frequencies right in a large venue because one of the things that is, I mean, bear in mind, you know, when you're working with a full range system, like, um, you know, the, the Underworld guys use this function one array. It's not a, a line array. It's just a, a hung one. It's old school PA, which I'd much prefer. I don't like line arrays at all, just from a, a mix point of view. Um, you end up, it's very you end up hearing so much more and the building resonates so much more it's actually really really hard to get those things right because it's also an ever-changing thing because depending on what key the tune is in you know all of those things can make a massive difference to how you tune the room and therefore how much bottom end or top end or whatever you get in there so it's, it's really i mean it, the system guys i think you know really have to know their stuff you need the right kind of system guys to make sure that you get that mix correctly as well no, no, no. I was just thinking, you know, with a with a kind of band band, that would probably uh, irritate me. Excessive kick drum, but with with a with a band like Underworld, where it's all electronics, mm. I love that kind of feeling of being punched in the guts, and that's what kind of gives the builds and the the kind of falls and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, it it back. it's great when it stops, but then it's really great when it comes back in again. Yeah, it's that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I remember being at a Radiohead gig um, in Cardiff CIA uh, in about 2003, and the bass was so huge that 
the end of my nose was vibrating so badly. I had to, I had to pinch the end of my nose. It's the only way I could. Uh, it's the only way I could enjoy the gig. Uh, was that intentional? Do you think, or was it just an unfortunate place you were stood in? My friend was with me as well. He was he was pinching his nose as well. So it wasn't just me. We were both there. Uh, but I mean. Speaking of pinching your nose at gigs, though, I find I am pinching my nose at gigs a lot more ever since the smoking ban has come in. You know, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> There's been a roaring trade in the new flavours for dry ice machines. Yes. <laughs> well, there, there was that interesting point, wasn't there? I mean, this is obviously um, the smoking thing. You know, masked an awful lot of uh, sweaty bodies. So now, when you go to a lot of places. All you can smell is sour beer, um, d- oh. dirty carpets, and and bo. You know, as opposed to an, an ashtray. <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of toss up, isn't it? You know, it's one of those things you just got to kind of like weigh up. But none of those things um, um, are likely to cause respiratory diseases, I suppose. <laughs> if if I may say one last serious point about uh, arena sound, yeah, is that I believe that over the last decade, decade and a half, it has improved enormously with the prevalence of uh, line arrays, which specifically are designed so that uh, with the what they call the coherent wave front, you no longer have to blow away the front of house to get good high-frequency distribution to the back of the room. And yeah. because of that, the sound of arenas has changed enormously over the last bunch of years. And typically, I find to be at least pretty good, typically, in large arenas. I, I, I'm sure you're absolutely right. I think the thing is, whenever I've been confronted by one to mix, I've never really understood it because I've always been used to more point source stuff and I understand how to make that sound, or at least I think I do, to make that sound right. I mean, whether or not the first three rows would agree with me, I don't know, but I'm not there. So I suppose, yeah, I, 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 I maybe, you know, if I get the opportunity to, to mix on those again ever, um, not that I think it's likely. I would like to. I'd like to maybe test that theory out and see if you get it. Just, I think the thing I miss with the the, the flown line arrays is you don't get the same feeling of power, pressure, and just on the edge of a little bit of uncomfort. You know, not painful, but just that the way that certain loud volumes induce an amount of adrenaline. And I think the line arrays kind of take the adrenaline away from the live performance, in my opinion. Anyway, I'm not sure that that's a good thing, but I just. It's, that's how it feels. Well, I was at Glastonbury last year, Glastonbury Festival, um, and watching, uh, ooh, I can't remember who it was now, on the main stage, uh, on the pyramid stage, and we were about maybe two or three people from the very front, and I turned to my friend, and I whispered to him, I literally whispered, I'm sure you shouldn't be able to hear me as clearly as this. And he whispered back saying, I know, uh, you know, it's bizarre. And this is right in the thick of it and literally we were whispering to each other and it is a little bit odd i mean you do does kind it, of does it feel quieter yeah definitely it definitely does it definitely feels uh you know um maybe that's the health and safety and the the, the licensing kind of restrictions of how loud it can actually be uh, perhaps in with something like glastonbury that they want to kind of contain the sound a little bit more but um 
uh, it's definitely never used to be like that. It does definitely take away a lot of the kind of atmosphere, say, like, I, 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 atmosphere and energy. Yeah. But it, you can sort of understand it because obviously, you know, more efficiency means less weight to carry around, which obviously means less touring costs. But I remember, I remember going to Glastonbury um, for the first time. I just finished exams and uh, we were in the back of my dad's friend's car and we were approaching the Glastonbury site and a reggae band called Black Ahuru were playing. Oh, yeah. And um, back in those days, they used to have a proper, you know, top mids base rig which was about 50k you know really powerful and obviously massively inefficient because you could hear it five miles away <laughs> but that was really <laughs> exciting for me and i i, I suppose i miss that it, you, but it, it makes no sense i agree rich in terms of efficiency and in terms of getting the sound to the right places and, and not uh, and making it a consistent sound but i i suppose i i'm just nostalgic for it i i had my fingers in my ears all through my childhood <laughs> I'm serious. I'm, I, I know you think I'm joking or exaggerating, but talk to anybody I grew up with and went to concerts with. <laughs> it's true. It always hurt me. I never liked it, and I still don't like it. But I can see that you do, and that's fine. Um, it, I don't. It, I mean, it, I, I, I'm very. I'm careful with my ears. You know. I mean, I used to do a lot of live sound, and I would be. I'd make sure that if it was too loud, I did something about it. You know. I don't like to hurt people. You know, there's sometimes when there's just a moment when it should be just a little loud, but not. You know. Not all the way through a gig, there might be just a moment where it reaches maximum intensity and you use it like that. But it's not something that that you want all the time. And obviously, you know, my ears are probably not as, you know, they're obviously not as sensitive as they were when I was doing more live sound. I'm probably, I don't know whether I'd be any good at it anymore because I've probably dulled, they're probably dropped, you know, dropped, dropped a bit of sound, whatever, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. I do have a soft spot for it. And you'd come back here raving about line arrays. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But regarding the thing about being down front, which was the situation Gaz was just describing, yeah. there are a lot of reasons why that could be screwed up, even with a really, really good line array. So in other words, I tend to hang more by the soundboard because I figure that's where it's going to sound good. That's just sort of my, my habit. And yeah. uh, tip, the whole thing about front fill these days as compared to, quote-unquote, the old days, is that stage volumes are typically lower nowadays than they used to be because the monitoring systems are better and people rely more on the monitors, which is really what they've been told they should have done all along. And so what happens is you don't get as much coming off the front of the stage. And so that what you hear in the third row has a lot to do with how they fill the space with speakers at that spot. And you could very easily be missed down there. And be basically hearing, you know, a reflective monitoring environment coming off the stage. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that's weird, isn't it? I mean, I've, we've all been to those production rehearsals where everybody's in in ears, apart from the drummer, and you just can't hear anything. And if they're using an electronic <laughs> kit, well, you can hear a plectrums on strings, an actual live vocal, and um, sticks on bits of plastic. It's really, really uh-huh. weird. Yeah, everybody's yeah. rocking out. It's a very unusual um, experience. I'm not sure I could play like that. It must take a lot of getting used to. But that's interesting, the way that they do that. They, they use those bass kickers now, don't they, where they basically put, <laughs> put a, a, a solenoid underneath the drummer so that every time he hits the kick drum, he gets kicked up the arse. So it sort of feels like air's, <laughs> air's moving, you know, <laughs> which is just a mm-hmm. It's like bang, 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 you know. It's, it, I mean, it's a brilliant psychoacoustic way. I mean, because I've done that before. I remember the first time I experienced that sort of thing was, I think I went to, to it was Music Messer, and they had these little Yamaha DJX um, devices, which I've got somewhere, a great little fun toy. And I, you were listening on headphones, but under the table, there was a massive subwoofer, 
So you were getting the headphones, no other voice, no other stuff apart from the kind of 80 hertz that was just down there. And it really made it sound amazing. And it was such a brilliant kind of trick. And it's the same trick with in-ear monitoring. You can use that kind of stuff, I guess. Uh, it does. Uh, I do remember a particular time um, back in the year 2000, my band Rocket Goldstar, we apparently did the first ever silent gig, which is kind of old news now. Uh, so the, uh, loads of people have been doing this kind of thing. But back, back then, uh, you know, it, it was kind of thought to be, um, you know, quite a breakthrough thing. And uh, Roland uh, kindly helped us and supplied all the equipment. Um, and we were using V drums and lots of other things. Uh, and it was, that, it was that kind of thing. We were performing this gig and the only sound you'd hear without the headphones was, uh, you know the the voices and the the sticks clattering on the on the pads etc um <laughs> but i think i've probably done one of my biggest um embarrassing moments really um we it got quite a lot of press at the time and we were doing a press show and the very first number we were doing um had this really elongated intro uh, they were using that, um, what was that Roland technology where they could do panning, like 3D panning? Is it RSS? Oh, yeah, RSS. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and so so they were, really wanted to sort of show off the technology. And we did this like elongated intro and we were sort of just sort of, um, and they were like panning it around everyone's heads and stuff. Um, unfortunately, the band, we had the same headphone mix as the audience. So like, you know, our parts were kind of like swimming around our heads, um, which is quite odd. And um Anyway, we sort of doing a big build up to where the drums and like the vocals all came crashing in all together. And it was like really trying to milk that moment. And, uh, and I'm a little bit of a show off on stage. And, um, and I just went to do this like big chord and I sing this really big note and I stepped forward and I stepped on the lead that pulled the lead out of my headphones which made me <laughs> it like like totally deaf <laughs> so everybody else could hear but i've kind of, i've just cut off everything i can't hear anything at all and i'm having to sort of like uh like guess what what everyone's doing and play <laughs> oh man oh, yeah. that sounds terrible yeah. i guess that's the downside <laughs> yeah but i'm sorry a bit, bit a bit off topic uh but um well i was gonna say with this whole silent gig malarkey though it was it was precisely the lack of vibration which ultimately makes that whole thing a little bit futile really you know it's you know without the vibes man you know well i think there's I just... mean, there's something to be said for sub frequencies that just move your guts and you can feel it in yeah. your chest or whatever like you were saying dave with the kick drum at the underworld gig i mean that's just it's part of the part of the whole thing but that was what was quite interesting was um, the monitoring on stage was seemed quite quiet. I mean, I could, but I mean, mind you, fighting against what was bouncing back sort of um, 400 milliseconds later was probably, uh, I don't know, we probably couldn't hear it anyway. Do you know what they used to, to monitor on stage? Because they weren't using there's they weren't using in ears or anything, were they? Uh, I think Daryl's got headphones, uh, but it's another fun. It's their normal function one system that they use on stage as well. Uh, okay. So right. that's that's just behind them. I think Carl's climbing over and dancing on and stuff. Right, I got you. Well, anyway, there's, there's a, I think there's a few more dates that you probably just missed the Underworld tour, but um, I think they're starting up again in the new year sometimes, maybe spring or summer. If you get a chance to see them, I can thoroughly recommend it. Very, very good, actually, live. Um, even though you might not think it, because it's like one guy and a couple of guys on stage operating the, 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 
the uh, the mixing desk and the computers, Carl really does actually hold the audience's attention. He's a brilliant showman. Brilliant. Um, well, I, I'm wondering whether or not we, we would... Uh, Rich, you've got to go, have you? Have you got a couple of minutes or how are you doing for time? Actually, no, it'd be good if I, I probably should sign off now. Okay, well, Rich, thank you very much for joining us. Um, really do appreciate you um, giving us this time and uh, have uh, a great rest of the day. Uh, Rich Hilton, of course, myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. Bye. Oh, I forgot to say, thank- yeah, happy Thanksgiving, of course, because we don't celebrate it. It's actually this weekend, isn't it? Uh, anyway, if you listen to this, Rich, happy Thanksgiving. I'm sorry I didn't mention it. <laughs> um, yeah, the Beatles. Uh, obviously, Beatles have now, they've settled their differences with Apple Computer Inc. Uh, I think, as far as I understand it, that Apple have agreed to buy the rights to all of the Apple Core stuff, but license it back to them for their own use. And I'm guessing they paid an enormous amount of money for that uh, privilege. And as part of the deal, uh, well, we um, we think that I think it was 2007. Apparently, that Apple Computer. It's rumoured that they paid 500 million US for that uh, pleasure. But now, obviously, they're on iTunes, and this is kind of the first time that uh, the Beatles have kind of got onto iTunes, and um, they've been everywhere. I, I've got some stats for you. Uh, 59 Beatles singles start charted in the first 24 hours. Two million. Two million individual songs and 450,000 albums were downloaded f- worldwide during the first week. This is, uh, I'm guessing, the November the 16th, so we're into well into the second week. It's kind of mental, really. I mean, uh, one, one thing is, um, is that good? I guess it's probably good for EMI. Um, but there, there are other questions that are raised as well. Uh, Gaz, I know you were keen to, to talk about this. Have you got any points you'd like to, to um, contribute? Uh, well, actually, I... I thought those figures sounded slightly low, really, um, from what I was maybe expecting. But perhaps by downloading terms, that's quite quite high, I guess. Um, the, I mean, this has been a an issue that has dragged on for a while, with obviously with the Apple uh, the Apple nonsense. Um, but yeah, I. I have got to say the whole remastered thing left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth last year when it came out. Because uh, I went out and I bought the box set, the uh, the stereo box set. And then when uh, and then I, I read online loads of reviews saying that the, the mono box set was where it was at. Oh, yes. I it, remember. I've, I've heard about that. Yeah. Mm. But then I kind of thought afterwards, I've just spent 180 quid on music I already own. And I didn't get the mono versions as well. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. it just that's marketing just, for you. Yeah, and I just kind of thought, hang on just one moment. You know, this music has made its kind of company and various people so much money. Oh, you know, perhaps we deserve a little bit more and uh, you know, we deserve, you know, why do we have to pay such sort of premium for it? I do understand it is the most valuable back catalogue in history and 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 it is quite definitely the best back catalogue in history. Um, but at the same time, oh, and now it's come out. It's funny how it's come out now, a year later or so after the the you know the, probably the sales of the of the uh, the CDs have sort of like died off a little bit. Um, 
bit cynical, methinks. Well, I think there is a certain... I mean, you know, as we all know, EMI have been in the doo-doo for some time trying to find a buyer and, you know, not being able to do that. So maybe there's an element of that in it because they must own the original recordings rather than the publishing. True. Uh, but I, I guess what it also... The question... I don't know. Um, Dave, are you a Beatles fan? Does this make any difference to your life in any way? I don't really know this band. Who are they again? <laughs> 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 are they a popular beat combo by any possible yes there's com- <laughs> there were some funny twitters weren't there saying that um yeah, i'm not i'm not feeling this new band on itunes yeah <laughs> bit dated no it just made me laugh out you know this has obviously been going on for years and years and years and then all of a sudden it was like yes but what about the mono box set and there was loads and loads of posts i saw about that and it was like wow so even though they've kind of done this, it's still not quite enough. Very funny. Mm. So I'd like to see if they would release. Uh, you know, I, I saw quite an interesting video uh, of George Massenberg talking in a some sort of uh, AES related thing. I think in Australia it was, and um, he was kind of ranting against iTunes for not providing high quality versions of downloads you know yeah. now now uh you know with move you know and, and like the argument in the past with mp3s obviously was was to do with bandwidth etc and, and storage space and whatever and and now you know now that's largely negligible uh and, and you know and so if you buy it uh, you could buy a movie and it'll be x amount of megabytes but uh music still is you're res- still restricted to these mini mini mp3 files you know and yeah. and itunes doesn't offer a high quality download does it i mean their high quality download is still what is it uh 320 isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. but there still is a compressed audio isn't it although i mean it probably sounds pretty good but um you know, if you're still paying premium price, why aren't you offered? Uh, well, yeah, you know, the, the, the Beatles songs, incidentally, are one a dollar twenty nine as opposed to seventy nine cents, which I think everybody else. Um, what? Yeah, so they're making. Ooh. They really are coining it in. I mean, yeah. outside of the quality issue, though, I mean, surely the, the other thing that was that I thought was interesting was: does this mean that you, if you're not in the party, then you're missing out on all this stuff. I mean, because there are a number of other artists who don't do this. I mean, Gabriel doesn't put his his stuff on iTunes, not all of it. Um, there's quite a lot of stuff you can't find. ACDC don't, do they? Yeah, there's various other, you know, is there, are they making a mistake? I mean, is there any reason why you wouldn't? I mean, obviously, you know, there's other news this week that Spotify have just lost $28 million and they haven't even launched in the US yet. You know, this, this is kind of... I, I don't know what that means. Does that support the idea that you should um, stick your stuff on iTunes or wherever it may be and just kind of embrace it? Or should you hang on to it and um, and do your own thing? It's interesting because uh, uh, referring to ACDC, I mean, ACDC don't make any of their music available on the internet at all. But I think, was it Black Ice broke certain sales records? And, uh, you know, and, and I think has Back in Black now become the most successful rock album of all time in terms of sales? Really? Certainly got the best guitar intro of all time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, you know, so, you know, maybe ACDC are laughing all the way to the bank, you know, that that, that they've kind of sort of kept their music out of that realm. I mean, obviously, I'm sure it's been downloaded. Well, and to be fair, to be fair, one of the things that MP3s doesn't do very well is complex, distorted uh, rock guitars, in my opinion. I had a really fascinating conversation with Andy Shillito last night, who said that um, your 
I think he said this before, but he was talking to some guy and said that your brain gets really fatigued listening to MP3s because it's trying to work out, you know, what's masked and what's not and various bits and pieces. And as a result, I think he's got rid of all of his um, downloaded stuff from iTunes and is now going out, you know, getting CDs. I thought it was quite an interesting point. Quite nice to clarify it with somebody who really does know. <laughs> I really so. There are, there are times with some, some, you know, jazz stuff. I bought a Roberta Flack album on iTunes and, the you know, it's got like really light cymbal work and brush work on the snare and stuff. And it yeah. was utterly appalling. Like <laughs> yeah. really awful. And then Andy played me a couple of Steely Dan tracks that he downloaded. I can't remember what they were. And they were completely different from each other. <gasps> Like wow. some really, really bad, stunning. Wow. It's the finesse, isn't it? I mean, it encourages the uh, this the ultra mastering. I, I, incidentally, George Massenberg, um, I, I I would like to say is the originator of one of the best drum sounds ever, which is on Little Feet, one of the Little Feet albums, because he engineered all the Little Feet stuff, and he sounded. Mm. There's uh, I, I forget what it's called, but there's a brilliant drum solo where it just sounds so beautiful. Anyway, mm. that's got nothing to do with anything. <laughs> <laughs> but that probably presumably wouldn't come across very well on uh, on iTunes. Yeah, because uh, you, you're definitely right. Uh, what Dave was just saying then about uh, symbols and, and you know brushwork or whatever, you know, that that is the first casualty of MP3, isn't it? Anything, any, the air and the kind of sparkle does kind of always sound a little bit reined in, a bit subdued, and. Uh, uh, slightly claustrophobic to what it should be, um, yeah. and I, I've just I'm, I'm just starting to regret all the effort I've put into making my uh, <laughs> 192k uh, kilo, kilobits uh, MP3 collection, and I am now just embarking on a big flack program. Now so I'm gonna I'm gonna oh, flack right, them all. <laughs> all right, that, and that's um, what's better about that L- one is it just got a bit lost. Of a, well, it's lossless, isn't it? Now, but I do. I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to try flacking something and then uncompressing it and then doing the old null test just to make sure that it is truly lossless. Hmm. Will iTunes play that? I think you can with a. I think it works with a plugin flack. Okay. Um, well, maybe yeah. that's the answer. Anyway, it didn't stop Rihanna getting to number one in the album chart, I'd just like to say, because she's everywhere at the moment. And um, so the Beatles didn't top everything, but they were. I made the big mistake of looking yesterday for the purposes of research, because I was a bit late with the topic, seeing about four or five albums in the charts. And I went back today to kind of get the kind of the sort of which ones were where. And there, was n- there weren't any in there. <laughs> so mm. I'm afraid I haven't got any examples of what <laughs> Beatles albums were doing. I, know, I remember seeing Sgt. Pepper's and also Abbey Road. There was another couple, but I forget which ones they were. But, but that's um, that's that's interesting, though, isn't it? Now that the charts change on a daily basis. Well, and also to... there were none in the. U- it was only in the US. There were none in the UK. Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I think that probably d- sort of gradually leaves us um, heading towards the end of the show. Uh, obviously, there's a couple of things I want to mention before we finally go. And first is obviously episode 200 is coming up fast. That's going to be on December the eighth. 2011 uh, we've got miss tara bush coming in to play a few songs and uh, we shall be doing all our fancy camera switching nonsense uh, that i've been practicing today hopefully there's three or four cameras anyway for you um so i'd just like to say uh, um 
do tune in there. It's going to be the same time. Oh, hold on, I'm having trouble getting back to my original camera now. <laughs> 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 I know, I'm blown. There we go, I'm back. Um, but uh, please do tune in for that because we're hoping that's going to be uh, a, a lot of fun and she's going to play. And every then, then um, we're going to have a party afterwards because it's a Christmas party and we haven't had one for quite some time. So I'm hoping um, Dave and Gaz will be able to come along. I think, Dave, yeah. you're going to come down for the show. Gaz, yeah. uh, you've got a session, but you're more than welcome to uh, come anytime, yeah, I'm, really. I'm going to come. I'm going to come fantastic um so um yes i want to reiterate that uh, and i'm going to start publicizing it because i'm feeling confident it might actually work uh but (laughs) we'll see how we do that but anyway um yeah december the 8th 4 p.m usual time so uh thank you very much to my uh, guest thank you very much to my guest oops I'm just coming out of your speakers there. Anyway, thanks very much to all my guests. Uh, thanks to Rich Hilton, who's obviously gone. And uh, uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of you guys in the States. I uh, hope you have a, a lovely weekend. Always uh, irks me that you kind of get two Christmases in, uh, in within two months. But, you know, I'll do my best. Maybe the Sonic uh, party will uh, more than make up for that. So, anyway, have a lovely Thanksgiving to all the stateside people. Thank you to everybody in the chat room. Really do appreciate you all being here. And also thank you to my local guests. Uh, we'll say thank you to Gaz Williams uh, from Bristol. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Yeah, love it. <laughs> and also to Dave Spears from g4software.com. Thank you very much. Good fun. Right. Okay, that's it. Uh, end of podcast. One second.